Hey, you guys know my wife, Robin McGraw, has Robin McGraw Revelation, which is a great skincare product. And one of hers is called Let There Be Bright. This is a triple action brightening serum. It brightens the complexion and even skin tone with this seriously fast-acting serum that combines Lumiskin, lactic acid, and vitamin C. It's RobinMcGrawRevelation.com. That's the only place you can get it. And right now, you get 30% off all products. Just use code RMR30. RMR30. During our exclusive interview, Casey and Sandy Parsons had done their best to evade my pointed questions about their missing adopted daughter, Erica Parsons. They had tried to tell me that as far as they knew, this little girl had been safe and sound with her grandmother, a woman that conveniently no one else knew of nor could locate, a woman who seemed like a figment of their imagination. As skeptical as I was, They were so adamant about claiming their innocence that I wanted to give them the chance to prove it. So I brought in a former FBI agent to conduct a polygraph exam. I'd already been told enough wild stories by these two to give me whiplash, but I could never have expected what would happen next. On this episode, we'll talk about the results of that polygraph test. Then, the truth is exposed about what life was really like for Erica in the Parsons household. For this poor little girl, it was nothing short of an utter nightmare. Then Casey and Sandy have to answer to the law, but not in the way you might think. And could a suspicious shed on the family's property hold the answers to where Erica might be? It's all coming up next on Little Girl Lost. The case of Erica Parsons. Mystery and murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil. When we last left off, I had just introduced polygraph expert and former FBI agent Jack Tremarco. Let's take a listen. He, he is the best of the best. I will make him available to y'all if you want to sit down and take a polygraph to clear your names. That's fine with me. Would you do that? Yes, I would. Now, let's talk a little bit about how this works. The subject is attached to the device by four to six sensors. And these are used to measure physiological conditions, heart rate, skin conductivity, and respiration. Now, the interviewer will typically ask a few simple questions that are just basically baselines to establish how reactive a subject's responsivity is. What's your name? Are you so many years old? And from these simple questions to the questions that pertain to the specific situation that's being investigated, the individual's response signals are recorded on a moving graph paper. If you don't have a baseline, you have nothing to compare to. Now, during and after, the administrator can assess the graphs and see if and where there are significant changes. Generally, a significant change in heart rate and increased perspiration, galvanic skin response, can signal a change and indicate deception. 
Now, there is controversy to this day as to how reliable these tests are. There are cases where these tests can help investigators get a confession out of a suspect. An expert needs to oversee these tests in order to get a clear understanding of how to interpret the results. And oftentimes, they're double scored. So there will be a machine that measures the responsivity, and then they're sent to an independent expert who looks at them in the blind. They haven't talked to the subject. They just simply go through the charts to see if they score them the same way the person that administered the test does. So there's a check and balance there. And there are variables that can contribute to different results. If someone is in pain or is in a distraught state, of course, this can influence the outcome because they're already aroused. For example, O.J. Simpson famously told his lawyers that he failed his polygraph because he was in a state of extreme emotional distress. What people don't know is that a skilled examiner does a long pre-interview before the test actually begins using the equipment. And during that examination, they define terms. They make sure that if we ask about knowledge, what it is you know, that the time is specific, what is meant by knowledge. If you're, for example, asking someone if they had sex with a person, you define what sex means so there's no confusion about it. And oftentimes, by the time you get to the end of the pre-interview, the individual has been convinced there's no point lying to this person. I can't beat this exam. I've been asked these questions. I've been boxed in. I know what they're going to ask me, and I'm convinced that my body won't lie, even if my mouth does. So oftentimes, confessions are given before the exam ever begins. Now, in this case, Sandy Parsons took the test. But when it came to Casey, she adamantly refused. On the day of, she claimed she was unable to follow through because she was feeling ill. Here's what Agent Tomarco had to say about it. I offered Casey and Sandy Parsons the opportunity to take a polygraph test to prove they were not involved in their daughter Erica's disappearance, and they agreed with no hesitation. Now, Erica's mom, Casey, volunteered to go first. Now, expert polygraph examiner Jack Tomarco administered the test. He is a former FBI special agent and FBI polygraph examiner. Now, one of the first things Jack does is ask a series of questions to make sure his subject is eligible to take the test and yield accurate results. Now, one of these questions is, are you in pain? Now, why is that important, Jack? Well, Dr. Phil, because pain can interfere with the physiological reactions that might be confused with deception. Because she said she was in pain, that day, you said, I, I can't do the test. This wouldn't be fair to you. She said she was a nine on a scale of one to 10, 10 right. being the most terrific pain. Okay. All right. Now, we offered for Casey to take her pain medication and come back and take the test the next day. But in her defense, 
She has had some significant surgery in the recent past. So we said, look, take your medication. You've been traveling, go rest in the hotel, do whatever. Come back the next day and let's try this again. She refused. Now Casey's husband, Sandy Parsons, did take a polygraph test. Now you may be wondering why Casey and Sandy are not here with me now to hear the results. Well, we offered Casey and Sandy the opportunity to come back several times, and each time they adamantly refused. Now, of course, if we offer a polygraph exam and the person isn't feeling well, or if they just flat out refuse, we have no choice but to accept that. Agent Tremarco acknowledged that if this woman was in pain, giving her the test wouldn't be advised. But she had other opportunities to go through with it. It wasn't a one-day-only deal. She didn't have to come back to L.A. We could have had someone come to her. To my way of thinking, if I'm trying to prove I'm innocent and I haven't caused harm to my missing child, I'm getting hooked up and taking the test come hell or high water. I want to eliminate myself. If I really want to find my child, I don't want them wasting valuable resources looking at me. If I know I'm innocent, let's prove it so you can stop focusing on me and start focusing on the real perpetrators. I think what might have transpired is that she agreed to interview with me thinking she could sail through her version of events without hitting any waves, but then as it was happening, she realized she was caught right in the middle of a storm and it was all happening on national television. And once that ship sails, it's hard to get off of it. You have seven cameras looking at you, you've got questions coming, and your denials often speak volumes. They often say more than your answers. Failing to answer a question often speaks more than the answer you might give. So when it came time for the test, she decided she wasn't going to go through with it. And again, that's not to disparage someone who might be in pain. This to me says she's a woman who doesn't want to answer simple yes or no questions because she knows she is in and in deep. With Casey absent, because she refused to take the test, as we got ready to read the results, I asked her lawyer for his input. Here's what he had to say. Carlisle, you came to hear the results of the polygraph. Uh, That's right. Right, and he wants to know the results of this test, as does America. But first, have you said to your clients that this defies common sense, that a child would not be seen for that period of time and nobody tell anybody or make any comments about it? I've told them that there's definitely uh, a divergence between the facts and what they've been saying. I've read that they have been collecting money, um, uh, presumably from an agency or, or the state, for having this child in the home, and that that may have been one motivation in not reporting that she was not residing there. Can you comment on that? I think they expected her to come back. They expected her back any time. As they say, when she's uh, ready to come back, she'll come back. And in order to uh, maintain her Medicaid, 
uh, they had to maintain their relationship with the government. Well, but if she's not actually living there, does that constitute fraud against the state? According to their indication or their information, uh, as long as they are legally responsible for her, they, should, they could continue to get the aid from the state. I understand. Why did they not want to come here to hear the results? Do you know? We were, we were in a hurry to get back to North Carolina. We offered for them to be on satellite with you today, and they refused that as well. Do you know why? No. The Parsons attorney, Carlisle Sherrill, is of course eager to hear the results that we've all been waiting for. And I have them right here uh, in this envelope. Now, Jack, the, you, um, you ask two questions here, but only testing one issue, correct? Exactly right. And the question you ask of Sandy is, did you deliberately cause Erica's disappearance? Now, you didn't ask him if he had killed his daughter. Why did you not ask him that? Quite frankly, we don't know that she's dead, so that would not be a good question. All right, then the second question, a variation of the first, you said, did you have a plan to cause Erica's disappearance? And his answer to both questions was? No. All right. And you say here that the results to both questions was strongly deceptive. That's correct. The numerical scoring for that particular format uh, was minus nine. In order for him to have failed this test, he would have needed a minus four or above. And so he was what the, I consider strongly deceptive to those relevant questions. This wasn't really even a close call. This was not a close call. It was just quite clear. So Casey never took that test. Not there that day, not at her home, at any time. She never took the test. And meanwhile, her husband, well, he didn't do very well. In common parlance, he failed it. Things just were not looking good for these two. So now it was once again up to their lawyer to flounder and try to excuse these results and this refusal to take the test. Carlisle, um, what, what's your comment? The, we know that there are problems in what Sandy and Casey have been saying um, as far as logically. Um, I don't know if he misread, the, misinterpreted the uh, question as far as the fact that they did, in fact, deliver her, and she's gone now. Right. Now, Jack, did you do a pre-interview before you actually administer the questions? And during that pre-interview, you qualify the terms and conditions. So when you say deliberately cause Erica's disappearance, is there any chance that he misunderstood what you meant? No, Dr. Phil, we went through the operative words in that question, deliberately caused a disappearance. He uh, was of the opinion throughout that she has not disappeared. The child was given to Nan, therefore he's not responsible for that. I explained that if she was given to Nan and Nan was legitimate and they dealt in good faith, um, 
then he would pass this test and of course he was not responsible for the disappearance. However, if they killed her or they sold her to someone or there was foul play, then he would be directly responsible for her disappearance. Okay. And he agreed with that. You didn't spring these questions on him. You said, here's what I'm gonna ask you. So this wasn't like, oh, a shock effect. There was you question review and his answers to those questions. And you have confidence in this test. You stand by the test. I do. You think he knows something he's not telling us. He does. A lot has been said about Casey, because let's face it, she's had a lot to say. But where did Sandy fit into all of this? As investigators would soon learn, and what seemed apparent to me, was that if there was a ringleader here, it was Casey. Now, when you talk to them, Sandy came across as the weaker of the two. She was the one who gave me specific details regarding Erica and her lives and this supposed grandmother, while her husband would only occasionally chime in or would merely repeat what she had to say. When you're dealing with possible criminal duos or criminal groups, there's always a leader and then those that kind of follow along. And that's what I sense was going on here. He aligned himself with his wife. He didn't contradict what she had to say or what she wanted to do. It didn't seem to matter to him whether it was right or wrong. At best, he was complicit. Even if he's just a sheep, he certainly knows the difference between right and wrong, but he's not standing up and stopping it. Remember, she was the one who was always coming up with these, quote, harebrained schemes. She was the one who allegedly came up with the scam in the past of trying to steal the baby she was a surrogate for. He even said that his side of the family did not like her and had been against him ever since he married her. When you look at her history, when you look at the way she conducts herself and how blatant she is in her transparent denials, it's not hard to see how his family would not embrace her. She might have been the so-called brains of the operation, but I got to tell you, I'm sitting there thinking these two seem like twiddle-dee and tweedle-dum of criminals. Neither they nor their lawyer could adequately explain the fact that they kept collecting money for Erica, although they hadn't seen her in years. Investigators uncovered that the couple had cashed adoption assistant checks totaling more than $12,000. Their lawyer's excuse for this? Well, they were expecting Erica to come back from Granny's when she was ready, and therefore thought it was all right, even necessary, to keep that money. It just didn't add up. They were deliberately misleading the government. They hadn't informed them that she no longer lived with them, and they were getting assistance to cover her living expenses. It makes you wonder how long they were planning to keep up this charade. No one was looking for this young girl or asking where she was until the Parsons' own son brought the case right to the police department's door. She allegedly went missing in 2011 at age 12 or 13. 
they weren't expecting anyone to say a peep about it. They could have run this scam until Erica supposedly turned 18 and aged out of the system and was no longer eligible for assistance money. But now it was out. And it was a key piece of evidence in the case police were building against them. And that wasn't all. Next, a mysterious shed was going to come into play. Investigators found a red wooden storage building located on a Parsons property. It was small. It almost looked like a tiny playhouse kind of barn, except it was in a dilapidated state surrounded by overgrown weeds and grass. The paint was fading. In photos, well, it just looked eerie. Once they searched inside, investigators seized videotape pieces of a vacuum cleaner, school records, and perhaps most troubling of all, teeth, which were submitted for lab analysis. So there now are all these red flags, but still no sign of this little girl. Hey, you know, we're coming into springtime, and it looks like we're going to have a lot of time sitting around home, so shopping online is the smart play. You can give yourself a springtime spruce up and enjoy brighter, healthier skin thanks to my wife, Robin McGraw's Revelations Brightening Trio. This unique triple action skin brightening kit will help you shine bright all day, every day by eliminating sunspots, rejuvenating dull skin, and restoring your youthful glow. This trio features Let There Be Bright, Starlight Face Bright, and twinkle, twinkle, you're a star. And you can only get them at RobinRegalRevelation.com. And right now, you get 30% off all products. 30% off all products. Just use code RMR30. RMR30. Before we get back to the story we're talking about today, I want to share something with you. You're about to enjoy a trailer of what's coming up on Dr. Phil for the rest of the month of May. I've made a decision that we've all reached saturation levels, what I call category fatigue. We have been looking and listening and thinking about coronavirus and COVID-19 24-7 for about six weeks now. And I am of the strong belief that we need a break. Let's get back to some of the content that we really find interesting, entertaining, educational, relatable, informative, and instructive. And right before we got shut down for the pandemic, we had just taped a series of shows that we had compiled to air in May. That's a time that we save some of our favorite best shows for because that's an important time for our advertisers. So I've made the decision for the remainder of this month, we're going to do a look back and show all new original shows that were shot before the pandemic. They're back on stage, back in studio, exciting, full of energy, and really, really good shows. Here's a peek at what you're going to see for the rest of the month of May. All this May. Dr. Phil is back with all new shows recorded before the stay-at-home order. I was an actor, a model, a Hollywood body double. A mysterious illness. If I don't force feed myself, my body will go into an attack. She feels atomic hunger and feels as if she's being electrocuted. 
all-new drama. You've been putting men ahead of her for a long time. You have been doing nothing but criminal activities. Am I going to pack her off somewhere for 90 days so you can take a break? Hell no. All new stories. 74-year-old Norma says she's in love with three different men she's never even met in person. She says they are stuck in foreign countries. The grand total that you have sent to Jeff is $223,710.50. I was trying to help him get home. For a quarter million dollars, you could buy an airplane and fly home. Dr. Phil is all new. All this May. Mystery and Murder, analysis by Dr. Phil. You may be thinking, with all of this, why not arrest these people right then, right now? Well, believe me, I've seen my share of cases where it seems like a no-brainer. These adoptive parents clearly were great suspects. They had stolen money. They had cooked up outlandish stories to explain why this child was gone. It seems like this would be an easy arrest, but there are one too many cases where circumstantial evidence just doesn't prove to be enough for a jury, and police and prosecutors get one bite at the apple. If they arrest too soon, and they go into court, and they have no body, they have no corpse, It's hard to make a case for murder. And the last thing they want to do is nab somebody who's actually guilty, only have them walk out free because they didn't wait long enough to build their case to make sure that they nail the right people. Now, the Parsons may have been evading murder charges for the time being, but that did not mean their lives were on easy street. First... Casey was hospitalized once again for stomach-related issues and had to have surgery. And more legal troubles would soon follow. Erica's adoptive grandparents, William and Janet, had decided to strike back. In September of 2013, they evicted the couple from their home, which the elder Parsons owned. They claimed Casey and Sandy had violated their lease agreement by removing property, failing to pay taxes, and that they owed them nearly $5,000. Casey's defense, and she always has a story, was that they had stopped taking the checks they gave them for the house. Mm, That's not a likely story, but like I said, she never fails to have a story. And alleged money being owed and damaged property aside, it was more clear than ever that the elder Parsons were against their son and his wife. They did not want them on their property. They knew in their bones something had happened to this child. Throughout this case, Casey and Sandy were actively trying to regain custody of their biological children who had been taken away by Child Protective Services and were living with Casey's aunt and uncle. Court proceedings were kept close to the media and ultimately the judge denied their request. They also stipulated that Sandy seek anger management counseling and submit to drug testing. Above all, the judge stated that in order to have a chance at getting their children back, they had to reveal where Erica was and also prove they were not criminally involved in her disappearance. For a couple that claimed that they had their hearts set on getting their children back, 
it's interesting to note, they revealed nothing. And I mean nothing new about Erica's whereabouts. It's a testament to perseverance that Erica's birth mother and the citizens of Rowan County were not letting her memory slip away. They held numerous vigils for her. On what would have been her 16th birthday, they held a special celebration, encouraging those that attended to bring clothing and canned food to donate to the needy. Family and friends tied balloons to the fence of her former home. They remarked to reporters that by this time, Erica would have had her driver's license. She might have been dating and thinking about going to college. Instead, it seemed like there were strings of yarn that all led back to the Parsons, and yet no one was any closer to actually finding Erica. The case was at a standstill. But trust me, this wasn't due to a lack of trying. It was nationwide news. As soon as the case broke, I offered reward money myself in order to help bring her back. And the FBI was now offering $25,000 to anyone who could lead them to her. She might have still been missing, but it was still time for her adoptive parents to pay the piper for their other alleged crimes. In July 2014, one year after Erica's case first began, they were formally arrested on charges of federal fraud. The indictment for the Parsons read that they had received not only false financial adoption assistance, but also Medicaid and food and nutrition service benefits for a dependent that did not live with them. They were working the system. Casey was also charged with falsely using the identities of other persons as dependents while preparing tax returns. In other words, she was continuing to claim Erica as a dependent even though she had disappeared. Both face years behind bars if convicted. The couple remained tight-lipped as they entered and exited the courtroom. Each had a separate trial. During one of Sandy's hearings, he defended himself by saying, I ain't never filed a tax. Casey fills them out. Casey said, sign this, so I signed it. That's why I got Casey. She takes care of me. Well, Casey took care of him, all right. She had led him directly into a prison cell with his name on it. Although these were fraud trials, the assistant U.S. attorney made sure that the subject of Erica was front and center in an effort to increase the penalties against the couple. Soon, this elaborate fraud case gave way to the tragic story of this young girl's abuse. Family members came forward and testified that the Parsons' home was a house of horrors for Erica. The allegations described were haunting and extensive. Robin Ashley, Casey's sister, alleged on the stand that both adoptive parents regularly abused Erica. She claimed that when Casey became angry with her, she would make her stand in the corner for long stretches of time. There were even photographs taken of Erica standing in the corner on five different occasions that were submitted to the court. 
Robin claimed that when Erica wasn't being abused, she was treated like a servant. She used the term Cinderella to describe her. Her treatment was markedly different from the Parsons' biological children. She was given all the chores. On two occasions during the child's life, she went to live with her Aunt Robin. When she was six years old, Robin noticed bruising on Erica's back. Robin alleged that Casey had wanted her to take the child because she couldn't stand the fact that Erica reminded her of Carolyn Parsons, a woman she despised. In Robin's words, Casey had even told her that she was afraid she would kill the little girl. As if that's not enough, remember the couple's grown son, Jamie, who had originally reported Erica's missing to the police. He testified that he himself had also abused Erica while she was in that house. He alleged that he and the other children in the family regularly abused her in addition to his parents. He said, and I'm quoting, I would hit her, physically abuse her, fist and belts. He even said he once broke her arm. He insisted that his mother encouraged the whole household to abuse this little girl. He told the court that Erica was often locked in a closet and that withholding food from her was a regular punishment. If she were ever caught trying to take a cookie or something else to eat without permission, she'd be fed canned dog food. It makes you wonder, why was nothing legally done about this back then when Erica was actually there? When I interviewed Casey and Sandy, I knew they had been visited by social workers in the past. I pressed them on those encounters. Casey maintained that social services had never found anything to give them pause. Mm, That wasn't exactly true. Still, how had no one stepped in to save this girl? You know, the sad fact is this case really puts a bright spotlight on how abused children in America can fall through the cracks even when abuse is reported. Social workers are often assigned thousands of cases in the United States. The Department of Social Services, known as the DSS, received reports that Erica was being abused on two different occasions, once in 2002 and once in 2004. When they first visited in 2002, a social worker was summoned due to reported bruising on the child. After the visit, they reported that the couple had pledged to stop using spankings as a form of punishment and instead would discipline Erica with timeouts and grounding. In 2004, the other social worker visit was prompted by a report that Casey Parsons did not want Erica and allegedly tried to give her away. Now, during this visit, the DSS noted that the child seemed small for her age. Casey explained that Erica's small stature was just due to genetics. She was born premature and that her parents were really small in size as well. Once again, they didn't find cause to remove the child from the home. 
Was there a follow-up? No. Again, social workers, they're just spread too thin. Apparently, when questioned during these visits, none of the children reported that Erica was in danger. So bottom line, had Casey and Sandy been held accountable by social services or even the North Carolina school system, this child might have had a fighting chance within the system and wouldn't have ended up missing. This wasn't a situation that nobody noticed. You always hear, if you see something, say something. People did see something. They did say something. But nobody did anything. While it's now crystal clear that these two had been monsters to this little girl, that's not what they were on trial for. They were on trial for fraud. Regardless, these witnesses did not help their case, and they were both found guilty. Sandy was sentenced to eight years, while Casey landed ten years behind bars. The judge labeled Casey the mastermind behind the scheme and admonished her for these allegations of abuse and for being a serial swindler. The judge also said there was nothing that indicated that Erica was still alive. So now... These two swindlers and child abusers were about to be tossed in prison. Still, this was the closest Erica would come to getting justice after everything that had happened to her. At this point in the case, that's how it seemed. But investigators and Erica's family were far from satisfied at the idea of these two just spending some time in prison and then walking free. The writing was on the wall. If they wanted to find Erica, they'd still have to tangle with these two in hopes that they would reveal critical clues or break down and finally confess. On our next and final episode, we come to this case's shocking end. Will Erica be found? And what would happen to those responsible and her innocent family that remains? That's all coming up on the conclusion of Little Girl Lost, the case of Erica Parsons. Mystery and murder, analysis by Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil. All this May. Dr. Phil is back with all new shows recorded before the stay-at-home order. I was an actor, a model, a Hollywood body double. A mysterious illness. If I don't force feed myself, my body will go into an attack. She feels atomic hunger and feels as if she's being electrocuted. All new drama. You've been putting men ahead of her for a long time. You have been doing nothing but criminal activities. Am I going to pack her off somewhere for 90 days so you can take a break? Hell no. All new stories. 74-year-old Norma says she's in love with three different men she's never even met in person. She says they are stuck in foreign countries. 
the grand total that you have sent to Jeff is $223,710.50. I was trying to help him get home. For a quarter million dollars, you could buy an airplane and fly home. Dr. Phil is all new. All this May.